Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. With your host, Linnea Hubbard. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. I'm Linnea Hubbard and today is Tuesday, February 14th, 2023. It's been 3,275 days since Russia occupied Crimea on February 27, 2014, and 356 days since the large-scale invasion of Ukraine began. Today's podcast looks at what happened yesterday in the Russia-Ukraine war. The Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Report is compiled by our team from around the world. Today's report includes information from direct contacts in Ukraine and their proxies, Russian Ministry of Defense reports, the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine reports, Operational Commands North, South, and East of Ukraine, Open Source Intelligence, our in-house team of analysts and geolocation experts, and pro-Ukrainian and pro-Russian mill bloggers and social media accounts with a track record of trying to be accurate. We have one mission, to report the truth, because the truth matters. Let's start with our assessment of the current status of the war. First, we assess that winter weather may play a larger role on the battlefield through February 19th due to significant snow, wind, and cold temperatures forecast for the week ahead. Second, we maintain that Russia's large-scale offensive has started, and the Russian Ministry of Defense, or MOD, is attempting to retake the initiative. Third, We now have low confidence that Russian forces will launch a larger, concentrated offensive in one or more directions on or before February 24th. Fourth, we maintain that data shows that Russian tactics and the quality of training for MOBIC units is only incrementally better than the first wave into Ukraine in October, and the Russian military within Ukraine remains incapable of dramatically changing the battlefield situation in the coming weeks. Fifth, we assess that the Russian Minister of Defense is actively working to eliminate the influence of private military company or PMC Wagner Group and its leader, Yevgeny Prigozhin, both on and off the battlefield. Sixth, we maintain the risk of punitive missile and drone strikes on civilians and civilian infrastructure continues. We further assess the risk of a major attack from February 20th to 24th as extremely high but weather-dependent, due to the Rammstein Working Group meeting on February 20th and the first anniversary of Russia's wide-scale invasion on February 24th. Seventh, we maintain that Russian forces will continue to target electrical, heating, and potable water infrastructure. Eighth, we maintain that the Russian Federation's inventory of caliber cruise missiles is critically low, based on the continued decline of launches from the Black Sea Fleet with even fewer caliber missiles involved in the February 9th and 10th attacks compared to January 25th and 26th. Ninth, we maintain that there is a risk of a nuclear accident caused by the de-energization of Ukrainian nuclear power plants as a result of Russian electrical infrastructure destruction. And finally, we maintain that stealth mobilization has started in the Russian Federation due to stop-loss orders for active-duty troops deployed in Ukraine and mobilization requests from the Kremlin in the occupied territories 
despite recent Kremlin denials. Let's get some regional updates, starting with the Donbass region in Luhansk. Luhansk Oblast administrative and military governor Serhii Haidai said in a TV interview that fighting continues to intensify along the line of conflict and Ukrainian forces had some success in the Kremina and Siversk operational areas. Videos and reports from Russian and Ukrainian sources support Haidai's summary. In the Svatova operational direction, the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, or GSAFU, and the Russian Ministry of Defense, or MOD, reported that Novoselivsky was shelled, while mercenaries with Rybar reported Russian forces were attempting to advance into the settlement. In the Kremina operational area, fighting was reported from Ploshanka to the banks of the Siversky Donets River near Shiplivka. Russian forces attempted to advance on Makievka from Ploshanka and were unsuccessful. A video showed a single Russian tank without infantry, artillery, or air support advancing west before being disabled. Two of the three crew members were able to evacuate. Rybar reported fighting in the area of Chervonopopivka, while the Russian MOD reported Ukrainian positions were shelled in the settlement. There weren't specific reports about the settlements south of Chervonopopivka, beyond multiple sources claiming that fighting continued along the, quote, entire line of conflict, which would include Pishani and Zhidlivka. Fighting continued northwest, west, southwest, and south of Kremina. We moved the line of conflict away from Yampolivka and Torske after a video released by Russian mill blogger Vitaly Kiselev showed Russian tanks firing on positions previously occupied by Russian troops. You will need the Telegram app to watch the video, but as with most of the photos and videos we reference on the podcast, we do link to it in our full situation report on Patreon. Russian propagandist Radyan Maroshnik stated Ukrainian forces had increased artillery activity, writing, quote, Arrivals on the line of contact in the Kremina area are difficult to count, end quote. The GSAFU and the Russian MOD reported the Dibrova area was shelled, while Rybar reported fighting for control of the village, and mercenaries from Worgonzo claimed Russian forces launched an offensive. The Russian MOD also reported that Ukrainian forces near Kuzmina were shelled. We did not adjust the map because the fighting in the Serbryansky woods remains between squads and platoons, some engaging in intense close combat. However, the reports of shelling and fighting in Dibrova and Kuzmina, and a video showing that Russian forces lost ground west of Kremina, indicate that Ukrainian forces have pushed back on the Russian advance. In the Lysychansk operational area, the GSAFU reported an attack on Bilohorivka, the one in Luhansk, was repelled, with Luhansk Governor Haidai reporting that Ukrainian positions were attacked from three directions without success. The Luhansk People's Republic, or LNR, Joint Center for Control and Coordination, or GCCC, claimed two rockets fired by HIMARS hit Kadyevka. Mercenary mill bloggers Rybar and Worgonzo echoed the reports. In northeast Donetsk, in the Siversk operational area, 
A small group of Russian troops supported by a tank attempted an advance along the railroad tracks from Bilohorivka, the one in Donetsk, to Vyamka, suffered heavy losses, and retreated to their defensive lines without the tank. The Ukrainian 93rd Mechanized Brigade continues to hold defensive positions south of Fedorivka. In the Solidar operational area, PMC Wagner attempted to advance on Vasyukivka without success. Orgonzo claims that PMC Wagner almost reached the settlement, which confused our team. With Wagner in Sakuivenceti, the terrain between the T-513 highway and the eastern edge of Vasyukivka is flat and has open fields. There is no viable way to get closer. To put it another way, an attack in this direction is to win or go home. The Russian MOD claimed that Russian forces captured Krasnohora days after PMC Wagner did and provided pictures. Wagner Group-controlled Russian state media and social channels exploded in fury. We'll talk about it a little more in the Russian mobilization section. In the Bakhmut operational area, intense fighting continued in Baraskovivka. Russian millblogger Kiselev claims that capturing the settlement, critical for the defense of Bakhmut, won't be easy due to an extensive tunnel network and Ukrainian access to a salt mine by the railroad yard. Russian forces remain one kilometer north of the M3 highway, and claims by some Russian mill bloggers that Paraskovievka is encircled are false. However, the situation remains fluid. Intense fighting in the northern, eastern, and southern regions of Bakhmut continued. There weren't any claims of territorial changes in the city's northern, northeastern, eastern, or southeastern areas. A Russian misinformation campaign has started that Ukrainian forces are actively withdrawing from the city, and only one brigade remains. Some assessment here. The GSAFU would have a plan for withdrawal, as would any competent military, but we haven't observed any key triggers that would force Ukraine to withdraw. Those triggers include Russian forces reaching the Bakhmutovka River, or the capture of Yehidne or Ivanivske. It would be naive to believe that political decisions don't influence the battlefield. Still, Ukraine is just as invested in holding Bakhmut past February 24th as Russia is in its effort to capture it. PMC Wagner claims that in the southern part of Bakhmut, their mercenaries advance to the Mariupol Cemetery, where fighting is ongoing. We can't verify their claim, but we adjusted the map. Wagner initially reported an Su-24 multi-role fighter plane, the same one that Prigozhin claims he flew a battle sortie in as a navigator, was shot down over Bakhmut. Prigozhin later denied the claim, telling his media arm that the aircraft was hit by anti-aircraft fire, but was able to return to base and is already undergoing repairs. It is the third Russian aircraft shot down or damaged in the last three days. In the Kostyantanivka operational direction, satellite images from Maxar and shared by Deep State confirmed that our map adjustments made on February 12th using the Terra unit video and terrain analysis of the areas south of Ivanivske and east of Stupochki were accurate. The image taken on February 13th clearly showed where Ukrainian and Russian defense lines are and no man's land. 
It also provided evidence that the T-504 highway bridge over the siversky donetsk donbass canal was destroyed by Russian artillery or bombing. Fighting continued south of Ivanivske and west of Klishivka. Ukraine has stabilized the defensive lines and continues to protect the T-504 highway ground line of communication, called a G-lock, that's a supply line. Some assessment. Although this is another positive assessment day, we maintain that the Russian MOD and PMC Wagner are committed to capturing Bakhmut at all costs. Russian forces shelled Lehman west of Slovyansk, causing heavy damage in civilian areas. In Druzhivka, Donetsk Oblast administrative and military governor Pavlo Kirilenko reported that the hospital was hit by rockets, causing significant damage, with no injuries reported. In southwest Donetsk, in the Avdiivka operational area, Russian forces have renewed attempts to capture the Ukrainian stronghold on the Krasnohorivka plateau. A satellite image showed the results of multiple failed attacks in the area, with the approaches from Novoselivka Druha and Vesele, the small village north of Avdiivka, pocked with craters. The image provides a stark contrast to how inaccurate Russian artillery fire is when compared to the areas south of Bakhmut. Orgonzo claimed that the 1st Army Corps attempted another advance out of Opitne, the one northwest of the Donetsk International Airport, while a Ukrainian source reported another failed attack on the Ukrainian firebase at Nevelsky. In the Marinka operational area, positional fighting continued in the center of Marinka with no change in the situation. In the Wuhadar operational area, Wargonzo repeated a claim from Russian millblogger Peter Kotik that the 155th Naval Infantry had reoccupied the dachas west of Mikilske. Other Russian millbloggers ignored or questioned the claim, and 1st Army Corps Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Khodakovsky, commander of the 11th Brigade of the 1st Army Corps, did not acknowledge the report. In our assessment, the claim is false. The Russian MOD reported that Wuhidar was shelled, while Ukrainian sources reported continued attempts made by squads and platoons of Russian light infantry to advance across the open fields toward the settlement. Ukrainian Colonel Oleksiy Dmitrashkivsky, a spokesperson for the Joint Press Office of the Defense Forces of the Tavria Front, claims the Russian 155th Naval Infantry has been virtually destroyed with losses of up to 130 vehicles, including 36 tanks since attacks on Wuhidar started. In our assessment, the conclusion that the 155th Naval Infantry is combat-destroyed is accurate, although we question the claim about equipment losses. There were claims that surviving members of the 155th refused to return to the front lines due to the heavy losses. Russian occupation officials in Mariupol deny that Ukraine struck Nikolsky overnight and that a Ukrainian Tochkayu short-range ballistic missile, or SRBM, was intercepted. Insurgents shared pictures of the aftermath of a reported rocket attack by HIMARS, which destroyed a Russian barracks, headquarters, and four trucks with ammunition. Russian sources shared pictures of the rocket debris found at the site and propagandists with Ridovka confirmed there was a successful attack, but denied that any Russian military assets were hit. Nikolsky, north of Mariupol, 
is within HIMARS range. Donetsk People's Republic, or DNR, Lieutenant Colonel Khodakovsky reported that his battalion headquarters was destroyed in a HIMARS attack and that at least one staff officer was killed. Although he never confirmed the base was in Nikolske, it was the only reported HIMARS strike between Ukhidar and Mariupol in the last 24 hours. In occupied Donetsk, Korlivka, Makivka, and Khartsik were shelled. At the time of recording, there wasn't any additional information, but the audio from Khartsik could have been ammunition cooking off or a series of HIMARS strikes. The self-declared leader of the DNR, Denis Pushilin, fired Khodois Yakov Valerievich, the first deputy for the Minister of Justice for the DNR. No reason was given for the termination. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers and analysts is funded by readers, listeners and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at Malcontent News. Moving on to Zaporizhia. In the Juliapola operational area, the GSAFU reported an attack in the direction of Zaleznichne was repulsed. We adjusted the line of conflict to Mirne at 47.5773 degrees north by 36.1201 degrees east, due to earlier reports of the hamlet being in no-man's land where Russian troops have periodically operated. South of Russian-occupied Polohi, a Russian convoy in Zeleny High was attacked by drone-directed artillery. In the Orihiv operational area, fighting was reported near Malatokmachka and Robotine. There was no change in the situation. Russian collaborator Vladimir Rogov stated that Ukraine has dramatically increased the amount of shelling across the entire line of contact in Zaporizhia. Telling Russian state media agency TASS, quote, The number of shells and missiles from the enemy has sharply increased. There was no such intensity of shelling for a couple of weeks, end quote. He also told TASS the line of conflict in Zaporizhia is frozen, saying, quote, If we talk about the line of contact, it is very active, but almost static, end quote. At the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, Peter Kotin limited the validity of licenses for the operation of the reactors after meeting with the State Atomic Energy Regulatory Commission. The commission has recommended bringing all six reactors to a cold shutdown state due to safety concerns caused by a lack of staffing and the long-term state of non-operation, which is degrading critical systems due to non-use. At the time of recording, neither the International Atomic Energy Agency, or IAEA, nor the Russian state enterprise Rosatom had released a statement. In the Black Sea, Crimea, Mykolaiv, and Odessa region, Operational Command South, or OCS, reported there are 16 vessels of the Black Sea Fleet on patrol, including one frigate and two Kilo-class submarines capable of launching up to 16 caliber cruise missiles. There are also reports of increased Russian reconnaissance drone activity, indicating another wave of missile attacks is being planned. In western and central Ukraine, Russian and Ukrainian forces traded artillery strikes across the Dnipro River. Russian forces carried out 54 fire missions, 13 on the city of Kherson, 
killing two and wounding three. The Uvalani concert hall was shelled in Kherson, along with the seaport and residential areas. A factory was also shelled, killing the security guard. In north and northeast Ukraine, in the Sumy Oblast, 94 mortars struck the Hromadas of Milopilia, Yunakivka, Miropilia, Esman, Krasnopilia, Khluchiv, and Shalikhin. Additionally, drone-delivered IEDs were dropped on Krasnopilia and Velika Pisarivka. There was no damage or casualties reported. In the Dvorichna operational area in Kharkiv, the GSAFU reported the area of Dvorichne was shelled. There really aren't that many places, quote, in the area of, that wouldn't be Dvorichne itself. The GSAFU also reported successfully repelling an attack on Khyanikivka, validating our assessment based on a February 12th Rybar report that the earlier capture claim by the Russian MOD was overstating the situation. On top of that, the Russian MOD reported that the settlement was shelled, adding additional evidence that it is partially or fully under Ukrainian control. On the Russian front, Rybar claimed the border villages of Alexeyevka in Kursk and Krasno in Bilgorod were shelled, However, there was no mention of shelling in Krasno on the Bilgorod social media channels and news sites we follow. Let's talk about developments theater-wide and outside Ukraine. The Rammstein Working Group will meet for the ninth time on February 20th. The coalition of almost 50 nations coordinating support for Ukraine will discuss protecting the Ukrainian skies, including aviation equipment requests, development of the so-called tank coalition, safety margins and minimums for ammunition, military training, and stability support for logistics, maintenance, and repair. Ukraine would like to see the creation of a so-called military Schengen zone for the movement of hardware in and out of the country to speed up logistics. Speaking of maintenance and repair, let's talk about the Russian military and mobilization. Quick content warning, we will be discussing self-harm. Police Major General Vladimir Makarov, the former deputy head of the main directorate of the Ministry of Internal Affairs of the Russian Federation for Combating Extremism, died by suicide in his home near Moscow. Quick sidebar, suicide is a sensitive topic, especially among our audience, which includes many veterans and their families. If you are having suicidal thoughts, are despondent, or feel hopeless, people care and there is help available. If you are in the United States, call 988 or 800-273-8255. You can also text 741741, and veterans can text 838255. In Canada, call 833-456-4566 or text 45645 between 4 p.m. and midnight Eastern Time. In the United Kingdom, 0800-689-5652 or 999. In Ireland, free phone 116123 for Ireland and Northern Ireland or text 50808 in Ireland only. In Australia, dial 131114 or 000 or text 0477 131114. In New Zealand, 0508-828-865 or 111. 
These numbers will also be listed in the description for this episode. The Russian State Duma and Kremlin spokesperson Dmitry Peskov said that a second wave of Russian mobilization is not being considered. But with the September 21st partial mobilization decree still in effect, including the current total stop-loss order of Russian troops in Ukraine and continued recruitment from penal colonies, stealth mobilization has been going on for months. Shortly after PMC Wagner Telegram channels shared a video of penal mercenary Dmitry Yakushenko being executed with a sledgehammer, Tatyana Maskolkova, the Commissioner for Human Rights of the Russian Federation, stated that she intended to send an appeal to the investigative committee. She wanted the video authenticated, adding, quote, extrajudicial executions are unacceptable, end quote. This starkly contrasts with the December sledgehammer execution of a Wagner mercenary, which was supported by members of the Russian government and praised by state media. After Moskalkova's call for an investigation, Prigozhin released another video through his Concord Group press service showing a living Yakushenko, declaring that after his capture, he shared, quote, valuable information, resulting in a, quote, full pardon. Okay, so wait, did he or did he not get killed by a sledgehammer? A fourth Russian military unit from Orenburg Federal District appealed to the Russian MOD on why they were moved from territorial defense to shock troops despite lacking proper equipment and training. They reported the same situation as other units of being transferred to the DNR, being told they were now frontline infantry, adding, quote, everything our battalion commander told us turned out to be a lie, end quote. They also added that their Russian military IDs were confiscated and replaced with ones from the DNR. All is going to plan. In geopolitical news, Maya Sandu, Prime Minister of Moldova, held a press conference outlining the Kremlin's plans to destabilize and overthrow her government through violence, kidnapping, and staged protests. Sandu said, quote, this is a short-term plan that involves sabotage involving persons with military training disguised as civilians. They are planning violent actions, including attacks on some state institutions and taking hostages. End quote. Sandu added that an attempt to seize power in Chisinau is being prepared under the guise of peaceful protests. The security services of Moldova are preparing for potential provocations and are working to maintain civil order and identify bad actors. In economic news, the ruble held at 74 for one U.S. dollar, but is drifting towards a worse exchange rate as demand destruction continues. WTI and Brent crude were mixed, with West Texas Intermediate unchanged at $79 and Brent rising to $86 a barrel. Russian Ural's crude was unchanged, with an official price of $58 a barrel, but continuing to sell well below market price due to sanctions and discounting to support illegal trade. United States wholesale Arbob gasoline on the spot market was flat, rising two whole cents to $2.50 a gallon or 65 cents a liter. Dutch TTF natural gas futures went up slightly, rising to 53 euros per megawatt hour for March contracts, and holding steady at 53 euros for April.
Chicago SRW wheat futures broke $8, rising to $8.04 a bushel for May 2023 delivery. And that's what we know. Join me again tomorrow for more updates. Until then, stay safe, everyone. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.